this is Rachel. Hey, this is Spencer. And this is Neon Boots, the 90s country music podcast. And today we have with us John Howie Jr. of the Rosewood Bluff and Two Dollar Pistols on occasion. Thanks for being here, John. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited that you're here, John, because first of all, you admitted that you've listened to all of our episodes. So <laughs> that makes you. I'm, I'm sorry. Man. A, we're sorry. B, thank you. No, I love um, it. I love it. But also, you are well known as just a music historian and just somebody that knows a lot about everything. And so it's going to be intimidating. A, a lot about everything. Let's, yeah. just, let's just not put that to the test. A lot about we everything. Don't. Well, the bottom line is that you know more than Spencer and I, and I'm okay. very happy for you to be here. <laughs> Ah, you accepted that really yes. easily. You're like, <laughs> You're like okay. I've okay, listened well. to your episodes. I no, know that no, I know no. more than you. <laughs> As he unveils, I don't think I saw this, the Robin Hood tattoo. Yeah, there it is. I can't remember that character's name, but Al- that's Al- voiced Al- by Al- Roger Miller. Yep. Mm-hmm. And Robin Hood, which we talked about a time or two. And yes, then, we've brought up Robin Hood on, on this here podcast. Was yes. Oh, that's right. You did. Yeah. It's my favorite my favorite movie as a child. My mm-hmm. mom took me to see it when I was, I think when, I mean, when it came out in the theater, so I was four or five. That's and that was the thing that kind of got me, you know, on the road. I was having a bad day. It was my first day of preschool, which, you know, we all know what that's like. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mom took me there and tried to drop me off. And I went, yeah, you know, and freaked <laughs> out. And like kind of for my mom, rare moment of like genuine sort of sympathy she took me aside and said how about this we spend the day together i will try again tomorrow Uh and i think i was just so thrilled and happy about that that we went straight to the movie theater saw robin hood and and the roger miller character is like the first talking character Mm -hmm. that you see so Mm -hmm. my associations i'm you know this is pop psychology but i think (laughs) you know that i was so happy about being able to spend time with my mom and not being dropped off at school and feeling just all that love that as soon as i saw that character i was like this is the greatest thing i've ever seen in my (laughs) life and and so i just loved roger miller's music from that point Uh did it take you a while like it did for me to be like oh that's how i know that voice yeah you know, I'm I'm not sure because you know I'm I'm 50, and even at that time he was so omnipresent, right, mm-hmm. on television. You know, he was like Paul Williams or someone like that. He was just constantly on TV. Mm-hmm. And my father had the record with "You Can't Roller Skate in a Buffalo Herd," right. and he had the one with Chugalog on, and he had those two albums. So you know, we listened to them. So he's one of the few artists that, like, my whole life. Yeah, and and that I kind of never stopped Mm -hmm. liking. I'm trying to think, like, maybe the Monkees, because I got into them when I was seven or eight. They were on TV. So, like, I went away from a lot of country music, you know, as a teenager. But Roger Miller, I always loved him. I I just always, you know, he's got this voice that's so soothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's so so appealing in the way way he talks. You know, it's just so (laughs) great, you know. And he's like a big child, you know, so... So to go back to what you said about kind of, I'm going to say you lost your way as a teenager <laughs> and, and moved away from country. What You're like the 85th person we've talked to about this. Yeah, I think sure. that's a uh, universal experience for yeah. all of us. Can you talk a little bit more about that arch of your experience with listening to and then playing your own music and how that has gone? So for me, the way that went, my mom was a jazz piano player. Mm-hmm. And so she only listened to jazz Mm -hmm. very much so some of the vocalists Billy Holiday Sarah Vaughan but mostly like Bill Evans and Oscar Peterson and Mm -hmm. stuff like that my dad on the other hand was from Tupelo Mississippi and he listened to 
you know, again, this is seventies when I'm growing up. So mm-hmm. the, that outlaw movement, yeah, that was tailor made. Like if he walked in the door right now, you would go, "I'll bet you listen to Waylon Jennings." <laughs> you know, it just looked like that guy, uh-huh. you know? and he loved all that stuff. And Christopherson, mm-hmm. and Tom Paul Glazer, and Guy Clark, and Towns Van Zandt, and Jerry Jeff Walker, like all of that stuff. Also, George Jones and Hank Williams and things like that. So I grew up hearing all of that music and the pop music of the day when I would ride around the car with my mother because mm-hmm. that's, she just played the pop radio station, which that at that time would be like ABBA, The Carpenters, who I, I still love both of those groups. Mm-hmm. Bread, I liked a lot. You know, a lot of it was stuff that I couldn't stand and still can't stand like Steve Miller and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but I loved all that kind of AM sort of pop stuff. And then... Sometime around 12 or 13 years old, you know, I just kind of got to the point where, you know, I wanted to be with my friends and hang out with my friends and have my own kind of taste. And so Mm -hmm. I completely rejected all of the music that they listened to. You know, I think a lot of people step away from country music in particular because they have this sort of negative associations with it. Like maybe, you know, like racist rednecks Mm -hmm. listen to it, you know, things like that. The person I knew that listened to that music was not that kind of guy, so it had nothing to do with that. The people I knew, and there were a lot of them in Wake County, believe me, um, <laughs> who were bigots and things, they listened to like Skinnerd mm-hmm. and Bob Seeger and music like that, which is, I still don't like Bob Seeger, but but I, I had a strong bias against Leonard Skinnerd until my early 20s. I mm. could not stand them because I did associate them with a certain type of person. Right. It was the early 80s. Reagan was in office. I was angry, angry young man. A lot of African-American friends and Wake County was, a, you know, mm-hmm. this is the era of Jesse Helms, man. Mm-hmm. Right, right. It's, it's, yeah. you know. So that's when you get into Johnny Rotten and Black Flag and The Dam and all of that stuff that that was my world man i I inhabited punk rock and loved it it kind of saved me at that time honestly made me realize that there were just other people who were not like everyone else and had different thought processes you know and i heard the sex pistols doing god save the queen like say what you will about john lydon now it was a genuinely pissed off guy Mm -hmm. at that time so that stuff kind of set me free man and then eventually got into if you kind of keep going back you know you get the Sex Pistols you gotta go back to the New York Dolls because everything kind of comes from that yeah you get into the New York Dolls you're gonna get into eventually like the Rolling Stones because they're the model for that band Mm -hmm. right you get into the Rolling Stones and you like them a lot eventually you're gonna read about Graham Parsons right get into Graham Parsons you're going to hear about Merle Haggard and George Jones and that's when we come come back full circle and I was about 19 years old when that happened Mm mm-hmm and you grew up around here then? You mentioned Wake County a lot. What happened was, and this is kind of personal, but I don't care. <laughs> um, when I was 19, and this is 1988, in Wake County, I was seeing a guy, and I'd been seeing him. He was my best friend, and, and we ended up becoming you know partners or whatever. At the time, you know, the, uh, I, I couldn't go to the Internet. I didn't know anyone I could talk to about that. And I liked women also. So I made the uneducated guess that whatever was going on between me and this guy was not legitimate and it wasn't real. And I mm-hmm. ended the relationship and it was absolutely devastating. Mm-hmm. It was really, really, really tricky. I wrecked a car around that time. I was working part-time at the tax department, and my father 
came to Sammy and just basically said, you know, you're you're floundering, man. I don't know what's going on, but you had been in college recently enough to be eligible for a work exchange program to Europe. My sister was already over there on that. I guess he, my sister and my father had discussed that and decided, you know, my sister was like, go tell him to do it. <laughs> so I went to Europe, man. I had money saved up and I went to Europe and got a work visa. Mm-hmm. I was there for a couple months, met a punk band and toured all over Europe with them. Didn't make a lot of money, but ate. And <laughs> those right, and those guys were into Johnny Cash, Graham Parsons, even George Jones to a degree. So that made it kind of okay because it wasn't like my dad, if that makes sense. Right, was, right, right. They were the first people, people your age and closer to yep. that were into that. And they were the first people my age, honestly, that I had met who listened to that kind of stuff. I'd never met anyone close to my age that listened to that stuff. You know, my dad went to see Conway Twitty and he dragged me to see Jerry Reed at the fair and <laughs> this is his Mel Tillis hat. But, you know, but but I would not have chosen that music, nor would my friends. I was listening to Adam and the Ants, you know, right, right. in 1982 when he dragged me to see Jerry Reed, you know. <laughs> so these guys were the first guys I met who, you know, liked Hank Williams. Mm-hmm. And... I was already on that train with the Burrito Brothers. I was already on that train with Grand Parsons. And once you get around people who you consider your peers at, at that age, you know, 19, 20 years old, it, it just makes it seem, you know, like it's okay. it's okay. Yeah. Right. It's funny that happened in Europe as opposed to here. I, I mean, exactly. Yeah. Like I left North Carolina, you know. Now, and, now and, I can find people there into Johnny Cash <laughs> once I get out of North Carolina. <laughs> totally, man. So then when I got back... I started really getting into that stuff and I went to my dad's house and I started borrowing records and he made me mixtapes mm-hmm. and stuff like that and that's and that's where like you get Porter Wagner and Webb Pierce mm-hmm. because he had that stuff along with your Merle Haggard and George Jones and Waylon and Willie and Guy Clark and all, all, all that stuff. So you kind of stayed embedded in that country genre all the way through the 90s so you were listening to the like Clint Black that we're going to be talking about <laughs> well you were in playing music in the playing country music in yeah. the 90s unlike yeah. a lot of people we've sure. talked to you were yeah, not in the commercial um, country world but yeah the first two Lord Pistols record came out in 1997 mm-hmm. um, when I came back I formed kind of a replacements type band with, with some people the guitar player Brad Rice ended up being in Whiskey Town and playing for Keith Urban mm-hmm. like also Tiff Merritt and Sunvolt but that was more like the replacements I left the band, I think, in 91, 92. Mm-hmm. At that point, I'd started really focusing on... I saw the backsliders around that time, which mm-hmm. were a different animal than they are now. They had a pedal steel player, right? Mm-hmm. They were doing, yeah. like, close-up the honky-tonks yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. I mean, it was crazy. And I thought, well, Jesus, you know, like, that's what I want to do. Because, like, it was just all I was listening to was, like, Buck Owens and Charlie Pride and Charlie Walker and Merle Haggard and just all that stuff. And so I started very slowly kind of getting some songs together and learning how to be a decent enough guitar player and by 1995 I had done that it mm-hmm. took a few years <laughs> you know but you don't want to do something like that poorly right. you know? right. <laughs> um, so that was when it happened the first record came out in 97 we went on a two-week tour we spent about three days in Nashville which is when I realized that that was not where we were supposed to be <laughs> um, but Clint Black I mean 
when I got back from England, I got a job in a warehouse, and a guy there had that first record, Killing Time, which I think you were saying, did that come out in 89? Is that right? I think it came out in 89. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. But I loved that. And the second record's Put Yourself in My Shoes, I believe. I think on that tour, he played the Dean Smith Center with Merle Haggard opening. Which is insane. Yeah, it's really crazy. And I wanted to go to that. But the band Finger that I was just talking about that I was in, we were playing all the time. We had a show. But I would have really enjoyed that. You know, it's weird to think that he was so big that Haggard. But see, that's the thing about that 90s country thing. Like, it all kind of flip-flopped. And can I tell you guys a really interesting 90s country story? Absolutely. That's why we're here. Check this out. Okay. I mean, I have several of them. Believe me, because it, like, became this kind of war. And we were on the other side of that. What was, like, the traditional versus that new pop country? And I'm a pacifist, man. I don't give a damn, you know. Like what? Like and you I just want to play music. Yeah, and and I know like what it's like to hear someone's voice and have it transcend everything, you know. And if that person was, you know, whoever Joe Diffie, I didn't care, you know. If you're happy, you're happy. But a friend of mine was a construction worker. And he was on the site. This would have been 1998. The second two dollar pistols record was a live record it's called Step Right Up, and we recorded it at local five hundred six. This friend of mine called me and he goes, "I heard a commercial with your music in it on WQDR or whatever the country station was," and I said, "You're kidding me! Like the station that plays like Kenny Chesney and stuff <laughs> like that?" And he goes, "Yeah, I did." And so the next day, I had to drive around a lot in the, in the Triangle, and I kept it. I kept it on that station all day. I kept it there all day everywhere I went. And sure enough, now we had a new record out. It was a live album. The first song on that album was "Heartaches and Hangovers" by George Jones. And this voice comes on and goes, I, "I'm not going to say WQDR because it may not have been that. I don't want to get sued for whatever." You know. Here at WTKQ, we don't play your grandfather's country. And they played us. <laughs> and played George Jones. Exactly. Yeah. Not your grandfather's right, country. Right, A bunch of like 28-year-old right. men and women in this band are your grandfather's country. We play only the best hot Oh, wait. Y'all are, y'all are the example of the... What they don't play. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's hilarious. So it was like this, this massive insult. And everywhere you went... It was like that. It was like all of a sudden it was like, Jesus Christ, man, I'm just over here with this band, you know? Like, like, so wait, funny. why can't they even use that? Literally, anyone else who had. I know. Yeah. That's a, hilarious. Isn't that weird? But then, like, why? I think if you talk to so many people who were playing music on those radio stations <laughs> in the 90s, would cite. George Jones sure. and people like that for the reason that they were making music. That is just like so contradictory to everything. Yeah, I mean, they can cite those guys, you know. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. They can do that all day long. I mean, I've seen Garth Brooks, I've seen an interview with him where he was crying about meeting George Jones. Mm-hmm. That doesn't change the fact that what he sounded he's like. virtually yeah. responsible <laughs> for those guys no longer being played on the radio. Right. You know, he's responsible for the arenification of country music. Mm-hmm. He's responsible for people fucking covering Billy Joel and having country hits with it, you know. Right. That's him. Thanks, Garth. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, like, when I got back from England, I remember listening to country radio, and there were acts I didn't like. But, you know, Roseanne Cash and Rodney Crowell had a hit mm-hmm. on the radio at that time in 1989, I believe. And two years later, I mean, they were all gone. Every one of those people was gone. Like, I mean, it wasn't just like 
you know, they would do weird things like that George Jones song, I Don't Need Your Rockin' Chair, that everybody's like, oh, it's so cool because at the end of it, he gets all these new country singers. Well, they did that so it would get played on the radio because right, right. they knew otherwise that there was no fucking way that, it would get yeah, that, that they're going to play him. So there was a lot of that stuff that I thought was okay and I certainly like compared to now mm-hmm. but I definitely have a, a bias against a lot of it just because of the effect that it had on people that I loved and, and on me right. you know like I say like there's this commercial where I'm being made fun of you know like like they're mocking me it was weird we opened up for Merle Haggard in Greensboro in 98 and it was still like, like the truck from the local country station was out there that I'm sure never played Merle Haggard and certainly didn't play us and they like interviewed us before the show and I was like what you might as well be interviewing me about like you know what it's like to be an astronaut or something you know right. what I mean like like we have nothing in common here you know because you're you're playing you know I've been there that's why I'm here Kenny Chesney's ode to going to AA you know mm-hmm. I've been through AA I'm not fucking writing a country song about it right. you, know, you know what I mean like um anyway well I mean it's interesting to me like as someone who wasn't around the triangle at the time you know you've got you mentioned Backstars and Whiskey right. Town and Six String Drag right. and then and y'all were a lot more into the traditional side of things. And then now at least like, you know, the EP I did with Tift and all that is like kind of revered as this like great kind of traditional is throwback it? kind of it's thing. Good to know. <laughs> you know. But then it's like at the time apparently y'all were dealing with that shit like, you know, this is your grandpa's country music yeah. and all that. So like y'all took that harder turn into the traditional than these guys are doing the more alt country yeah. thing. I knew all those people and, and liked them you right. know, at the time. But we were definitely doing something, you know, like to me I don't mean this in a der- the derogatory way it's going to sound. <laughs> and I, I don't want this taken the wrong way because I'm certainly well aware of what has come to light in terms of Ryan Adams. But right. let's say in 1995, you know, he was he was a nice kid, you know, and I liked him and a, clearly a, a gifted songwriter. But I never thought when that guy's 50, he's going to be singing country music. It just didn't seem that. It was like, sure. well, this is sort of this little, you know, it was almost like when the birds did it or something. Right, I mean, right. God knows I adore, worship the birds, but like, you know, it's like, it's just sort of part of this, like when Alex Chilton was in Big Star, like it's it's not what you're going to do forever. Right, right, right. Um, and that was very evident to me, you know, in, in, in a lot of that music for sure. Like, you know, whereas for me, it was like I finally fucking figured out what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. you know, playing that kind of music. It's just at last, you know, there's, here's what I'm supposed to be doing. So, well, I mean, it's kind of interesting. Like the song you picked was Clint Black, and on the Wikipedia article, I didn't go into the individual references. It was talking about the uh, lawsuit he had with his manager in '92 about some uh, royalties and all that sort of thing, okay. and just that the scene I guess was changing so fast between his first or sorry second album in 1990 and then this one The Hard Way it came out in 92 so it was kind of saying like his image had to change because it was like this sexier country singer act had to be presented between 90 and 92 so like dished the hat and like wore tighter clothes and all this kind of stuff CMT did that right which like over 18 months basically like there's a pretty quick period for country music to evolve that much in terms of him changing his his image and the song that you picked burn one down for this was mentioned as one that he's kind of denied it but 
kind of alluding to the relationship with his manager sure. that it was you know kind of a um, he was getting taken advantage of and all that kind of stuff. So it was interesting to me that that was you know a year and a half right now between albums is nothing, yeah. but for him it was like a okay we've got to change this whole you know Billy, Billy Ray Cyrus had become a thing yeah, and Alan Jackson totally changed, had, yeah. and Travis Tritt had come up on the scene all that kind of mm. stuff. So because of that delay. Like you said, landscape had changed so much. Right. But, I mean, this song itself is very traditional sounding to yeah. me. Right. I mean, it does sound to me at times like, oh, I could hear Garth Brooks singing this. Sure. But in terms of arrangement and all that, definitely traditional leaning. Yeah. I think Clint Black's, like, I'm not sure. There was that guy he wrote songs with a lot. And I don't know which one of them wrote lyrics. I wish I were better informed on that. But one of the things I really missed when he started doing, he got married to a celebrity. I can't remember her name. But he, he, he just all of a sudden seemed like, kind of, he just seemed really sort of Hollywoodish, and, and it, it seemed sort of out of place, you know? It was like, right, right. what are you doing? You know, mm-hmm. like, like, why are you doing this? But his lyrics to me had been really great on Killing Time, Put Yourself in My Place, and On the Hard Way. And he's very capable of sadness, but they're yeah. very clever. Um, he's a great thinker. And then all of a sudden, they just kind of became, you know, generic, mm-hmm. you know, boring lyrics, <laughs> you know? <laughs> To me, along with his music after that, which is, I guess, not a very nice thing to say, but we're all friends here. <laughs> well, I mean, and maybe that part of that was trying to fit that commercial sure. mold once yeah. he once he was kind of in it. So, yeah, it's funny you mentioned Lisa Hartman is who, who he, yeah. he married, and she later on was on some songs with him. It's like a duet partner. Oh. And I know we messaged about this, the uh, de-electrified album that he put out in 99. <sighs> which he did some all acoustic versions of stuff he had done before, including Burn One Down. And she was on a song on that. The Burn One Down on that release was not great. (laughs) It was like a bluesy kind of like, I don't know, too like punchy and like, you know, energetic for this downer song. Mm -hmm. Edgar Winter plays sax on that, which was the thing he apparently does. Didn't know that. I didn't. I had no idea. Your winner played sax. So funny. Like, that's I, I hope he just like picked it up. And like, sure, I'll be on your song. Let me play sax. Like, oh, you he want? Just you plays want... one note the whole time. Hanging yeah. out, right? Exactly. He's like, yeah, I'll be on it. Let me do whatever the fuck I want. Like, um, you know, I saw Clint Black finally. Right after 9-11, my then-girlfriend and I, like, travel was so cheap at that point, And, like, hotel right. rooms were so cheap. We decided to go to Nashville. That Christmas of 2001, they were doing the Grand Ole Opry at the Ryman, which was pretty rare at that mm-hmm. point. And so we went, and I'm glad we did, because a lot of those people are just dead now. We got to see Porter Wagner and Jim Ed Brown and mm-hmm. Gene Shepard and Jack Green and all those. You know, they were still there. But the guest was Clint Black, and he came on, I guess, and did three or four songs, and they were all from those first two records. Right. Yeah. This is 2001. Yeah. Nothing. None of those later kind of, you know, bad goodbye or any of those kind of. Right, right. That stuff almost sounds like, like, there's a type of ballad to me. When I was in junior high school, there was this terrible song by Mike Reno from Loverboy (laughs) and and the woman from Heart, who I like a lot. Ann Wilson, which is the guitarist and who's the singer. I'm sorry. That's embarrassing. But whoever the singer is is in Heart. So they did this awful duet called Almost Paradise. It was a piece of garbage. <laughs> and that's to me is what that Bad Goodbye song sounded mm-hmm. like. It was just like this, just like the hokiest 
scientifically designed to make a certain kind of person cry and then buy it. <laughs> well, but that's what you know. so much of Nashville is, like yeah, figuring sure. out that science of who's going to spend the money yep. and getting the lyrics down to that, which I think is interesting because we've talked about the hokiness of country music and how it can be cheesy. And in some senses, like that's just, that's the roots of country music right. and kind of, making fun and self-deprecation that's even for classic country music that's at the root of it but there's a fine line between that cheesy and hokiness from the classic days up to just like people that it seems like they don't even try and it just comes across cheesy it's cheese without soul i guess <laughs> yeah one, when, one you, way to when, look when at you it. say that like three words Come to my mind, and those three words are boot scoot boogie. Man. Like, that's immediately. <laughs> oh like, man, I love boot scoot boogie. <laughs> there were so many songs like that. I, I was on a plane around that time. The Two Dollar Pistols got invited to play Switzerland. Switzerland Country Music Festival is great. They flew us over there, put us up for two days. So we go to Chicago, and myself and our fiddle player both had big cowboy hats. And we walk on the plane. And this guy's immediately like, ah, you're in a country band. And, and we're like, yeah, yeah. And he goes, you don't play none of that Porter Wagner bullshit. You know, so there was already like that. Right. You know, as long as it's not that kind of music, which we pretty much played, you know. <laughs> um, but I remember they had a country, you know, you, you can listen to the music. And they had a country station. We were just sitting there going, God, like, because it was Don't Take the Girl. Is that Tim McGraw? That's a fucking awful mm-hmm. fucking song. <laughs> and Boot Scoot Boogie. And, yeah, and I, I think that song, I've Been There, That's Why I'm Here by Kenny Chesney had just yeah. come out. And it was just like this endless stream. And we were just like, just stop. Just like, just can't fucking take this. Don't take the girl, man. That's just fucking tear. Oh, sorry. I think the <laughs> issue... I'm not going to speak for Spencer, but I think for me, the nostalgia of my age that I was when I was listening to these songs means that I can easily overlook how bad they are. Oh, man, I have that with a lot of 70s (laughs) music, believe me, like the Partridge Family or whatever. Like, I hear that stuff and it still makes me happy. Well, you said the monkeys. Well, you just make us sad. Monkeys, don't yeah, don't tell the girl. The it's not like it makes me happy. It's just yeah. <laughs> All time. Yeah. yeah, it's just terrible. So you chose the Clint Black one because it was kind of one of his last ones that was decent. You know, and, <laughs> well, and I like it so much to be honest with you that I've played "Burn One Down" and "The Hard Way" from that album solo acoustic shows, mm-hmm. and I've done. From Put Yourself in My Shoes, I've done Gulf of Mexico and uh, and Where Are You Now? And it seems like at some point I've probably done something off Killing Time. Like, you know, I really liked those. Like, mm-hmm. I legitimately, I'm not sure I liked them quite as much as Dwight Yoakam, but I liked them a lot, mm-hmm. you know. I think the lyrics to that Burn One Down mm-hmm. song are great. To me, kind of atypically for that time, they're a little more kind of classic country-themed than a lot of the stuff that was happening there and I, I could be just imagining that but it seems like by that point you know when was was Aki Bricky Heart was that 90? 92 was it? Was it that late? Wow. I think it was 92. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah so it, it was a weird time I mean like even the people that get talked about as being more traditional like Travis Tritt mm-hmm. like me and my friends didn't listen to that stuff. Yeah. And, you know I mean that song he and Marty Stewart had the whiskey ain't working anymore like why would I listen to that when there's a million 
far better written songs about whiskey. About whiskey. <laughs> you, you, you know, like... Well, so do you want to take a, a second and listen to the... We haven't listened to it yet, so let's take a listen to Burn One Down. Some candles always burn One thing I want to talk about first was he broke at a time when I think it was trickier for a lot of artists like George Strait, which we were talking about over text and how many number ones he had, mm-hmm. you know, came up in the 80s. Randy Travis came up in the 80s. And then, like, he was kind of right at this transition point when he put out his first album and first couple albums. Mm-hmm. So I think it probably made it trickier for him where, you know, George Strait could keep kind of doing what he was doing right to transition this newer country sound before he was established enough to just like oh that's what he does you know so i imagine that kind of made it a little bit harder on him i mean this song itself sounds more traditional but then there were people like alan jackson who i don't know if you heard us mention you on the episode when you posted uh, pyramid of cans i didn't even realize right. until then that oh alan jackson's referenced that in chattahoochee which definitely does not sound like traditional country but he's like right. making a callback to that whereas yeah. this is like a callback to the sound you know but doesn't do nearly as well as alan jackson doing chattahoochee and just referencing yeah sure you know and then uh when we did midnight montgomery you know he references hank williams hank and williams. all that yeah. so yeah. you know country stories do that now where they mention hank williams or whoever and try to like buy their cred cred through that yeah but that's exactly what you're saying so they are they don't necessarily care about sounding like them they're buying the cred with the name drop right right, right. exactly but eric church mm-hmm. and a, a friend of mine plays guitar for him and he's apparently a very nice guy but he's got that song I Pledge Allegiance to the Hag <laughs> <laughs> which is really weird you know it's yeah. like do you? but Alan Jackson I always liked I forgot about him yeah he had uh, that great version of Tall Tall Trees weren't we discussing oh, yeah, yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. And how did he get away with stuff like that? like he did Roger Miller's song he had a hit with that Tom T. Hall Itty yeah, Bitty yeah and then he did that, there goes your name, whatever that, but that was really country sounding. <laughs> right, 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 like, yeah. Those songs were all great, and, and Everything I Love is Killing Me, those were great songs. It's kind of remarkable to me that um, that he had that kind of success, you know. I don't know what it is. What is it about people like him and George Strait? Are they just so normal <laughs> seeming that somehow they can still appeal to middle America? Like, they don't seem I- like guys who are going to go on a tear you know, and go do a bunch of cocaine like right. George right. Shines or whoever. I don't know. They talked about, have you watched the, I'm going to just continue to bring this up, but have you watched the country music Ken Burns? I saw clips of it. Yet. Me and H.C. McIntyre and Alice Gerard did a thing at the Cat's Cradle and they showed oh, yeah. parts of it. Uh-huh. But I saw the Hank Williams part and I saw the Vince Gill Part. I did not see anything like that about that. Well, the so the discussion of like '90s country was very minimal, and I was very upset about it. <laughs> um, but they did talk about how you had the countrypolitan mm-hmm. yeah. sound, so it wasn't yeah. very like smooth. 
I don't know, like yacht rot of country sure. type stuff, well, and that strings. people got sick of that. And so whenever you had your Reba McIntyre, your Alan Jackson that were bringing back that more traditional right. country sound, even though it was modernized a little bit, that people were just ready. It, it's just like a pendulum. Like yeah. it had swung too far with the country politan thing and people wanted to sure. get back to the roots, which is why I think people like Alan Jackson succeeded and why Garth Brooks was able because some of his stuff does swing mm-hmm. back to the, but then he just glamorizes it. Yeah. And, you I know, think his voice is the least, he just doesn't, to me, he's just not a convincing country singer, you know? Sounding, yeah. I can see him singing rock and blues mm-hmm. rock, but like at no point does he sound like a hillbilly or whatever. Well, and they, t- they talked about where Garth Brooks got his start and it was doing like a cover band yeah. on a college campus. And so, he basically, it sounded like, learned how to shape his voice and shape the sound to fit whatever he was covering. Right, sure. So he had the ability to sound really country, but he also had the ability to sound like really rock. Kiss or yeah. Something, yeah. So it's like <laughs> you know. he never, I think that that goes back to he's not a convincing country singer or sounding singer because he's able to do so much different. I thought some of the people that came in his wake who were kind of junior Garth Brooks is like John Michael Montgomery, for mm-hmm. example, I thought was far better. Yeah. I'd much rather hear Beer and Bones, as dumb a song as that, <laughs> that is, you know, than Friends in Low Places, right. you know, to me. And, and he sounded more country, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. But, it, yeah, I mean, and in somewhere in there, too, you had, like, when I was a kid, you had this, the, the big commercial movement was the, the, was Urban Cowboy when that movie came oh, yeah. out. John Travolta. Right. So there was all this music that all of a sudden had this weird kind of sound to it, like like Mickey Gilly and, and the looking for love and all that. You know that song? Okay. <laughs> yes. Which now that's coming back around because like, like I like this song, but like the new Mike and the Moon Pies single that Rolling Stone and everyone's falling over themselves to say is the greatest thing in the world totally sounds like an Urban Cowboy song. It's from that moment, man. <laughs> if if you cue up Johnny Lee doing "Looking for Love" and then you look good in neon, uh-huh. I'm telling you, they they could be on the same record. I it's guess he played amazing. that at Hopscotch. Probably so. I don't yeah. remember specifically, but Spencer yeah. and I were sitting together during his set, and we're like. We can't place what 90s country song this sounds like because it sounds like all of them at once. Which, I mean, was not bad. And the people at the Lincoln freaking loved it it and ate it up. And I know that they're doing really well, but it sounded recycled to me. Well, it's weird because, whatever, I'm 50 years old. I kind of don't care anymore. I'm not (laughs) going to win any friends by saying this. But, like, you had that sort of moment where it was like Sergio Simpson Mm -hmm. and all these guys that were clearly, like, doing this Waylon Jennings thing. And then that's gone. Sergio Simpson's making records that sound like, you know, Eliminator era ZZ Top now. <laughs> right. And and so I'm like, Mike and the Moon Pies are the band that Rolling Stones sang is so great. And they sound like, you know, urban cowboy music. Mm-hmm. It's just weird. It's like you can't like, if you had told me that there was going to be people making urban cowboy type music and that Rolling Stone was going to be hailing them as the saviors <laughs> of country music, I would have right. been like, what are you talking about? You know. Well, but also like who is listening to Mike and the Moon Pies? Like right. would they get the urban cowboy right. reference? Probably not. Maybe not. Yeah. And so it's it you're able to recycle it because you have a whole new audience yep. that that's fresh for. That's true. Yeah. yeah. So we were talking a little bit about like the with Garth Brooks and all that kind of the rock crossover. I don't think we've talked about 
the co-writers on the song. So mm-hmm. Clint Black co-wrote it with Hayden Nicholas. So I think you were kind of alluding to as one of the guys he's collaborated with basically his whole career yeah. is a band leader and they've co-written I think it was 15 number ones together Jesus Christ and then Frankie Miller is the other co-writer who like the this Scottish Frankie Miller right yeah, yeah. what yeah, I've, yeah. I went <laughs> through a lot of Google searches to make sure it was the same one oh my god because there's like an old 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 country guy Named Frankie Miller. Sure, it was like Stardate Records. And stuff. Right, right. Which that was like, oh, obviously, like the links are wrong, whatever. Yeah. But everything else I read was like, no, it's this Frankie Miller who was on the Thin Lizzy record. Yeah, and they've got the yeah. tattoo of a big Thin Lizzy fan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so, sings on Still in Love with You. That's right, right, right. Insane. And uh, my, favorite, my favorite thing from learning about him was Rod Stewart's called him the only white guy that's ever brought a tear to my eye. <laughs> Rod Stewart said <laughs> Yeah. So, and he covered stuff for right. the Bellamy Brothers, Three Dog Night, but uh, kind of a interesting pairing. I was yeah. looking a lot for like how those three got together, came together and yeah. I could not find anything. It's, it's a very unexpected, well, him and Hey Nicholas did clever and like everything, but like yeah. how do they rope him in on this? And right. why? You know, right, yeah. I, mean, I mean, I mean, obviously he did it. Like, I love the song, but like, why would you pick a Scottish kind of soul song? <laughs> right, right, right. To help you write a '90s country song—that's bizarre. Wow. Well, there you go. I learned something, at least one thing. But that is a, an intense <laughs> thing to learn on your podcast today. That's crazy. One thing reading about James Stroud, who co-produced this album with Clint Black and did several other records with him mentioned like before they would put a record down when they were doing the pre-production all that yeah. he would be very Clint Black being he I would be very uh, cognizant of like alright do we have enough like mid-tempo songs do we have enough ballads do we have enough you know sure. up-tempo songs which doesn't seem to be your approach necessarily with I was, I was thinking of not tonight it's and not with not, that one not a whole lot of like oh yeah we need a lot of Fast songs as record, yeah, at least yeah. I, I assume you skipped over that thought process. Well, you know, I mean, sequencing to me, pacing and sequencing a record, like that's an art form. I've always taken a very hands on and been allowed to take, for the most part, there have been a couple of times when a record company has gone, well, we want to flip these songs or whatever. But even when I was playing drums for Sarah Shook and the Disarmers, I was you know sequence a, a big part of the sequencing of those records that's something that i take very very seriously mm-hmm. but you know but not tonight is more like i mean it's not this good i don't mean it like that but to, <laughs> but to me it's more like like phases and stages by willie nelson or something like that where it's like a narrative it's, right, right, it's, right it's not supposed to be like the rosa bluff we're starting to record next month for our next record that will hopefully be out in maybe april of next year and that'll be different that's got a certain number of shuffles and a train beat song and a couple of ballads and blah 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 but not tonight is a bunch of songs about one thing and so like the idea of trying to dictate to that was just not something that that sounds kind of pretentious and i don't mean it (laughs) it's just not something that i wanted to do you know i mean it was sad it's a sad record it's about the demise of a relationship which is sad and the songs just kind of came out like that it's got a couple of mid-tempo ones and then one shuffle but it, yeah, it's got a lot of ballads on it. We, you know, we don't play a lot of that record live because some of those songs, again, much like Faces and Stages, kind of don't necessarily make sense out of the context right, right, right. of that record. Because I mean, I wrote 
that record has 11 songs on it. Ten of them I wrote. There's a Cat Stevens cover on that record, which is weird for a country record. So, yeah. <laughs> and of those ten, I wrote eight of those in like a month. Mm. I mean, uh, specifically at a specific time because, you know, this relationship was just sort of falling apart. And it juiced back up for another amazingly two years after that. It kind of stumbled along. And then after it ended for good, I wrote the last two sort of to kind of bring it you know Mm -hmm. these pieces that sort of brought it all together I like it you know I've gotten some heat for it Uh, it certainly didn't get a whole lot of local support I could sit here and and try and figure out why that is and could probably come pretty close to figuring it out (laughs) but I'm not going to do that I don't care you know it there were definitely complaints it was too sad but it's country fucking you know it's country music man (laughs) you know what I mean yeah Yeah, right like that's the deal that's why we listen to this music people you know and I think especially an album like that about like a particular situation or time or whatever like it should have a mood to it mm-hmm. I agree and yeah. not try to shoehorn in like it. let me put in this like up-tempo barn burner song just right. just to make some people happy or make a single or something on this totally I'm making country records half my life at this point or close to it but at this point like I guess like ambition to me is just making the record the way I want it to sound yeah yeah. it's not getting on Rolling Stones you know millionth top ten country songs you have to hear right now you're (laughs) a loser you know list or, or you know or anything like that I just want the records to sound a certain way I mean Not Tonight like is sort of like all the others like it seems to have you know people tell me they love it just two days ago i got a message from some guy on facebook saying he never leaves the house you know without it on his phone and all this and you know those records tend to find their audience you yeah. know it's it doesn't happen quickly because i'm not on a label with a publicist or a radio person or, or things like that but it, it does happen and i've been fortunate I'm always surprised, but the Two Dollar Pistols, you know, like uh, some of those songs are on TV. I had one in um, Orange Is the New Black recently, mm-hmm. and I've had them in movies. So you know, there's like all these little small things that kind of keep my name at least on the periphery mm-hmm. of that mm-hmm. stuff, you know. So. so you mentioned that you guys are going to be recording a new album soon. What else do you have coming up? Well, we've been playing. I was just telling Spencer, like, we, we had a pretty busy couple of months. We played the Muddy Roots Festival in Tennessee, and we had a bunch of shows like that. So we're kind of chilling in November and December with the exception of Greensboro at the Flatiron. And I think that is December 13th, mm-hmm. I believe. And in January, we're playing a Monstercade in Winston. I think there's going to be a Sua Sounds, which is the label that I'm on, mm-hmm. show around. I'm sorry, Monstercade is in December too. No, I can't remember. <laughs> sorry, um, we'll, we'll we'll figure it out. Look at www.johnhowiejr.com, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Um, Sua Sounds is putting together a Christmas show, the proceeds of which I think are going to benefit LGBTQ like teens who are, who are having, as I did, you know, kind of issues dealing yeah. with that. And that's probably going to be, you know, I'm assuming the people who are on that label, which is me, uh, Al Riggs, Skylar Goudage, Reese McHenry, it'll probably be us. I'm not sure where that's going to be or when it's going to be. 
And then we should probably sponsor that because that's everybody that's been on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, totally. Yeah, yeah. Last one we had to check off that list. Check, check, check. <laughs> Done. Well, the neon boots guest party as right. well. Don't slash Sounds show. But then uh, October nineteenth, we're playing with Dylan Earl, who you've had, mm-hmm. who's a, a sweetheart of a young man, um, <laughs> and a band I like a lot called Severed Fingers who I really like a lot. There's a person named Jesse Bouchard who writes the songs and sings for that band, and they're great. So I'm really excited about that. So that show with John Howie Jr., Dylan Earl, and Severed Fingers will be October 19th at the Cat's Cradle Backroom in Carborough. Awesome. Very yeah, cool. Looking forward to that, and hopefully seeing Dylan there, too. Yeah, he's, he's, yeah. I, I love him. Yeah. He was a trip. What was? I bet that was a blast having him over here. It was. Um, <laughs> I felt like I had BJ Barham in the room. They're like the same person. I don't know if that's an insult or. A... No, they just both have a lot of energy. Uh, I yeah. like both of them. So a lot. much energy. Yeah. So yeah. many opinions about. Well, and of course, Dylan is a little bit closer in age to us, so I think he has a lot of the nostalgia sure. with um, '90s country music. And he was wearing some ridiculous ass sunglasses. Those shades are are, are, are oh out of this world, man. It's, it's awesome. Those shades, like what? What? So you know, what are he those? did yeah. achy breaky heart, right? Is yeah. that what he did? Yeah. 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 That was that was fun. So I guess you all will have to collaborate on cover of that. We will have to do that, <laughs> or, or we can do old Old Town Road. Oh man! You have to give Billy Ray Cyrus like some credit, man. Like like. How do you keep that going and then end up doing something that I think is pretty cool? Like, like mm-hmm. I would not have guessed that. You know, when he came out with that song, like Travis Tritt and all those guys were like, we don't want no butt wiggling and catchy music. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, those guys got all up in arms about Icky Breaky Heart. But, I mean, I think he just, from the get-go because of that, like, didn't give a shit. Yep. So it's like, cool when Lil Nas X gets called for not being country and all right. that. He was like... All right, well, I'll do this. Why not? It's not like he, you know, had this like really deep connection with like the country music machine that he had like you know keep perpetuating all that. So well, and to make our obligatory Dolly Parton mention every episode, (laughs) you know, since Billy Ray Cyrus toured with her early on, like and course she is Miley Cyrus's godmother and it makes me think about how much business savvy he probably picked up from her because she's done such an amazing job at staying relevant and being loved across all genres across all generations and she's found a way to be connected and he obviously did that with Old Town Road and I mean yeah tip my hat to him for totally remaining relevant somehow right because <laughs> right. that and, was a and, joke at the time that Aki Bricky Hard I mean it was like you right. know, it really was it was like the butt of so many like, but also you know, like jokes. everybody that we've had on even people that were not listening to country music in that moment knew that song sure. yeah. it's just yeah. it's omnipresent crazy yeah. <laughs> good job Billy Ray yeah for sure man uh, uh, respect Respect. Yeah, we'll have him on one day. Absolutely. (laughs) Next time I hang out with him, I will be sure to send him your please. Thanks. Send him your way. (laughs) Well, awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today and uh, schooling us on some country music and making me feel bad about liking the stuff that I do. No. Never. No, it was great. I, I, I hope. 
it keeps going and I can make a return visit, I can find some other songs. Absolutely. From that world, dig, for sure. Dig some deep cuts. Yeah. Very good. Hooray. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye, Mom. Bye, Spencer's mom. <laughs> Robin Hood and Little John running through the forest Jumping fences, dodging trees and trying to get away Contemplating nothing but escaping Finally making it oodle lolly golly what a day oodle lolly golly what a day